Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. First graders and on down, you may now leave for Children's Church first grade. We're going back to our original plan since the kids are done with their their music. Um, The rest of you can turn to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. I do want to invite you to come this Saturday night. It's Christmas Eve. We will have a Christmas Eve candlelight service at 6 o'clock. This will be a packed house as it usually is every year. There's one service. And then next Sunday, Christmas morning, we're still going to have church. So we'll have our normal church service at 1015. It gives you time to open presents in the morning and do what you need to do. Come worship for a little while and go back and do what else you need to do. So uh, we're not going to give up on God just because Christmas falls on Sunday. If I'm the only one here preaching, so be it. We're still going to worship. So Psalm 98. Now, as we approach the Christmas season... And I were to ask you a question. One question to think about this Christmas season. And here's the question. What is that one moment in your life when you were the happiest? That one moment in your life when you were the happiest. Maybe it was on your wedding day. Maybe it was the birth of your child. Maybe it was the day when you graduated from high school. Are you graduated from college? Or are parents when your children finally left the house? Right on. Maybe it was your first paycheck. The day you got that promotion. The day that you got that new job. Maybe it was that the happiest day of your life was sitting on a beach without a care in the world, just listening to the waves. Or maybe your happiest day was skiing down a snow-capped mountain with fresh powder and, and the world is just perfect. Your happiest moment. How many of you guys remember that very annoying song from the 1980s by Bobby McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy? I hate that song. (laughs) Don't worry, be happy. It seems everybody on the planet is seeking happiness. Now, I did an uh, Amazon search this past week on Amazon.com, and I, I looked for book titles with the word happy in them, and it came up with over 22,000 books with the word happy. Our Declaration of Independence tells us what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And just a side note, our founding document never guarantees happiness. The pursuit of happiness is what the do- founding document tells us. I did a Google search on the word happiness came up with over 3.3 million hits. I found a site called How to Be Happy. So I thought, okay, let me go there and find out how to be happy. Number one, be optimistic. Number two, follow your gut. Number three, make a lot of money. Number four, have good family and friends. Number five, smile. Number six, forgive. And number seven, make new friends. I feel much better now, don't you? Worldly wisdom. Our world is obsessed with happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. But as we're looking over these three weeks leading up to Christmas, attitudes or responses of the heart that we as Christians should have, I believe as Christians, we need to take it a step further and not just talk about happiness, but true biblical joy. Joy. Joy to the world. 
Now, joy, if you're like me, joy is one of those hard things to define. It's rather elusive. I think we know what it is, and we know what it isn't. And joy is one of those things that we really, really want to experience. And so today we're going to look at what does it mean to be joyful. Last week we looked at repentance. Today we're going to look at joy. Now, the song, Joy to the World, is considered by many to be the most popular Christmas carol of all time. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Now, it was written in 1719 by Isaac Watts. It was based on Psalm 98, the psalm that we're going to look at this morning. But here's an interesting thing about joy to the world. We often think it's a Christmas carol, but do you realize when it was originally written, it was written to celebrate the second coming of Christ. It's really an end times hymn, not a Christmas carol. It was kind of morphed later on into a Christmas carol when when it was put to music during Handel's Messiah, and we've got joy to the world. So we're going to look at the lyrics of Joy to the World, and we're going to look in depth at this pretty short hymn, Psalm 98, to discover joy. But before we do that, I want to think about how do we define joy? How, how do you really define it? Jesus says in John fifteen eleven, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Joy is something that Jesus gives to us. Jesus gives to us his joy. He wants our joy to be full. He wants us to experience the fullness of his joy. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, you're probably very familiar with this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Joy is given to us from the Holy Spirit as one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. So, So joy is something that's supernatural. It's not something that you and I can produce within ourselves. Jesus has to give it to us. The Holy Spirit gives it to us. It's produced deep within us. Joy is something that this world cannot really understand. It's something that really only true believers who've been saved by grace through the gospel can understand because it's supernaturally given to us through Christ. And so here's my definition of joy. Now, there's probably better definitions out there. I guarantee you there's better definitions. There's probably more comprehensive definitions. But here's my best, here's my best effort to define joy. Okay, are you ready for it? Here's joy. Joy is a deep-seated sense of peace, contentment, and satisfaction in Christ alone, regardless of circumstances, that rests in the unchanging grace of God. Now let me, let, me, let me unpack this for you. Joy is a deep-seated sin. It's deep-seated. It's not surfacy. It's not plasticky. It's deep-seated deep down in our heart. It's a sense of peace. The peace that passes understanding. The peace that comes from Christ. It's a sense of contentment. A sense of satisfaction in Christ alone. Not in things, in Christ alone. And it's not regardless of our circumstances. You could be going through the worst of circumstances and still have joy in your heart because it rests, and that's a key word, it rests in the unchanging grace of God. When we think about joy... We often think about something deep down in our hearts. When we meditate upon God's goodness, when we meditate upon God's greatness, we feel joy. But do you realize that all throughout the scriptures, joy is meant to be expressed? 
It's meant to come out, if you will. It's meant to be sung. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be told. It's meant to be preached. It's, it's, it's usually done in corporate worship. Do you realize that the psalmist says, make a joyful noise? Does he ever say, think a joyful thought? No. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to think joyful thoughts, but almost every time you look at the psalms, it's make a joyful noise. It's got to come out somehow. Now, we can think happy little joyful thoughts, and that's good, but almost all throughout the scriptures, it's meant to be expressed. It's meant to come out. If you are a Christian and you've experienced the joy of the Lord, you can't hold it in. It's got to come out. And so here's the question for us this morning. How does it come out? How does this joy express itself? How do we articulate joy? Do we just walk around with joyful thoughts and people like read our minds? Are you joyful? I don't know. It hasn't come out. I can't read your mind. It's got to come out. Luke chapter 2, 8 through 11. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were all filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. The Greek word there is mega, a mega joy that will be for all the people, for unto you... Born this day in the city of David as a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the angelic announcement that the, that, that, that the shepherds received, that the birth of Christ is to be good news. Why is it good news? Because it's the announcement of Christ coming to save us from our sins. And it's a good news of what? Great joy. Christmas is to be a time of great joy. It's a time to shout joy to the world. Are you ready? Here we go. Joy to the world. Oh, good. Some of you are actually shouting it. We'll sing it here in a minute. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. The, the, the hymn tells us to prepare him room. How do we do that? How do you prepare room in your heart for Jesus this Christmas? How do you express joy to the world? How, how, how does it come out in song? How does it come out in your attitude? How does it come out in your speech? We declare it. Now let's look at Psalm 98 because Psalm 98 was the impetus for Isaac Watts to write joy to the world. And we're going to look at this psalm and really from this psalm, I like the way the ESV really does it because it, it kind of gives you a natural break the way I think the Hebrew text does. And we find three primary reasons to be joyful three primary reasons to be joyful number one we're to be joyful for who for what god has done what god has done number two we're to be joyful for who god is and number three we're to be joyful for what god will do what god has done who he is what he will do in the future so let's look at all three of these first of all we find out we're to be joyful for what god has done we see this in verses one through three so let's read verses one through three and find out what God has done. Psalm 98. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the earth, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The psalmist here says, sing a joyful song, praise the Lord, be joyful 
for what God has done. He has done marvelous things. Now, I want you to notice something before we go any further. You will see the word LORD in all caps, all capitalization in your Bible. L-O-R-D, all caps. And when you see that in the Old Testament, that's a clue to let you know that he's talking about Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant personal name that God enters into a relationship with his people. It's, it's, the, it's the Lord, Yahweh, Lord Yahweh. It was to be this personal, intimate name that the Israelites would call God. And so we are worshiping the Lord. But notice what the psalmist tells us to do. Sing to the Lord a what? A new song. Now, if you trace this concept of a new song through the scriptures, you find that two times you sing a new song. One, you sing a new song when you've won a military battle. So when you've won victory, you sing a new song. The other time you sing a new song is when you come into corporate worship like we are, the temple worship, you would sing a new song together. Just a side note. That's why we at Emmanuel sing new songs, because the Bible tells us to. It's good to sing songs from 100 years ago, and we do that. But it's also good to sing songs from 2011, because there are a lot of good hymn writers and praise song writers. There's good music out now, and the Bible tells us to sing a new song. So we should always be looking at new songs. Now, we need to make sure that they're good in theology. We need to make sure that they're musically um, good, that they're not weird or wacky. But the Bible, all throughout the Scripture, says sing a new song. Isaiah chapter 42, 8 through 10. Listen to what God says. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Why do we sing a new song here in Isaiah? Because God says, I am the Lord. I will not share my glory with another. I am worthy of all praise and worship, and so sing a new song to me. Now think about Christianity for a moment. Christianity is about all things new. What happens when you become a Christian? You become a new creation. You are born again. You are born again. What does God do in your heart? He renews your mind day by day. There will be a new heaven and a new earth one day. It's about all things new. Christianity is not a stagnant, stale religion with a stagnant, stale God. Christianity is a dynamic and wonderful relationship with the living God. So here's a question for you this morning. Here's a question for you this morning. Is God doing a new work in your life? Is God doing a fresh work in your life? Are you seeking God to do something new? If not... You may need to ask yourself, where am I at in my walk with Christ and in this process of sanctification? Have I gotten stale? Have I gotten stagnant? Have I gotten comfortable? Do I want God to do something new in my life so that I can sing a new song to Christ for what he's doing? Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Aren't you thankful God's mercies are new every morning? If you had a bad day today, guess what? There's tomorrow. And his mercies will be new. And his mercies will be new. His mercies will be new every day. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song 
saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation in heaven. We will be singing a new song because of Jesus and his victory. Revelation 21, 4 through 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down for the words are trustworthy and true. So we are to sing a new song to the Lord. But notice what the text tells us back here in Psalm 98. He has done marvelous things now what are these marvelous things that god has done now the psalmist tells us we're not left in the dark look there in verse one he has done marvelous things his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him when you think about the right arm of god the right hand of god this was a metaphor in the old testament to talk about god's deliverance of the people out of egyptian bondage into the promised land all throughout the old testament talks about god's mighty right arm working salvation so god is powerful god is strong he's worked salvation with his right arm exodus chapter 15 when they come out of the red sea and they sing a song, Exodus 15, 11 through 13. Moses says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed, and you've guided them by the strength of your holy abode. So we see here that not only has God worked salvation for Israel in the Old Testament, Egyptian bondage into the, the promised land. But in the New Testament, God has worked salvation through Christ. Notice verse 2. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. God has made it known. That word means to be uncovered. God has uncovered. God has made known His salvation. So let me just tell you something about you this morning. If you as a sinner are ever going to come to faith in Christ, God must do something to open your eyes. He must reveal truth to you. The Holy Spirit must come take the blinders off of your eyes and and He has to uncover uh, the deep sin in your heart so that you understand that you need salvation. This is exactly what happened to Peter. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 17, when Jesus is asking His disciples, "Who, who who do people say that I am? Listen to Peter's confession. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. How can we know that we're sinners and we need salvation? Because the Holy Spirit comes and makes it known. This salvation is revealed to us. Paul goes one step further and says that as lost people, you're blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. He says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of Christ. And then what happens? Verse 5, well, what we proclaim is not ourselves. We're not preaching ourselves, Paul's saying. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So here's what happens. When lost, dead, blind people hear the preaching of the gospel, guess what God does? 
Verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just like Genesis 1-1, when God said, Let there be light, God says, Let there be light in the heart of the sinner. The light bulb turns on, the blinders come off, and a sinner sees the glory of Christ because salvation has been revealed to them. This psalm says, God has made known His salvation. But not only that, look at verse 3. He has remembered his hesed. Now you guys know what hesed is, right? You've hung around here long enough. If you've been around here the past four or five years, we know that hesed, that Hebrew word for steadfast love, means that faithful, covenant, tenacious, loyal love that God has for his people where he will never let them go. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of the Lord. What has God done? He's brought us salvation. That's what this psalm says. He's done marvelous things. Now, think about the third verse of Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He makes, or he comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Now, what in the world is the curse? If Jesus has come to make his blessings flow to to remove the curse, what's the curse? Do you realize that when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought a curse or God pronounced a curse upon all of creation? Our creation and all people are under bondage of decay. That's why there's wars. That's why there's famine. That's why there's pestilence. That's why there's tornadoes. That's why there's earthquakes. That's why there's genocide. That's why there's slavery. That's why there's marital infidelity. That's why there's dysfunctional relationships because in this world, the world has been cursed. But Jesus has come and in his death on the cross, he's done something about that curse. Now, one day when he comes back, it will totally be dealt with. But on the cross, Christ broke the curse. Listen to Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So, so, so why should we be joyful this Christmas? Because of what God has done. What has God done? He has done marvelous things. What marvelous things? He has brought us salvation through Jesus Christ to break the curse of sin. Now, I'm going to think about this for a moment. If, if, if this Christmas, your salvation does not bring you joy, then there's something wrong with you. I'll just say it right out. If you do not have a deep-seated sense of joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction in Christ alone, regardless of the circumstances, by resting in His unchanging grace for you that was most clearly established through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there's something wrong. Because the gospel of Christ and your salvation should bring you the greatest sense of joy. And it needs to be expressed. Not just thought about, not just felt, but expressed, sung, articulated, shared. It needs to come out to others. Now, the first reason we are joyful is because what have God has done. He's done marvelous things. But secondly, we are to be joyful for who God is. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Who God is. Let's continue reading. Verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before 
the King, the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Now, we don't quite understand what it means to make a joyful noise. I I would guarantee you, if we took this verse literally, the way it's rendered in the Hebrew, a lot of you would be very uncomfortable. You know why? The literal Hebrew means to shout or applause like you just won a victory in war. We don't do that in our Baptist churches. We don't shout. Maybe we should sometimes to be biblical. I think our translations have kind of sanitized it. Make a joyful noise. This was a war cry of joy because of the victory that God had won. And notice what it says. Notice the intensity of it. Verse 4, break forth. Burst forth. Let it come out. Don't hold anything back. And then use these instruments. Use the lyre. Use the cymbals. Use the, use the uh, what else is in there? I've got to read. Trumpets. The sound of the horn. All of these, these um, amazing instruments. To do what? Go tell it on the mountain. Why do we say go tell it on the mountain? We don't go, go think about it on the mountain. Go have happy thoughts of it on the mountain. Go tell it. And if you, have, if you want to, bang a, bang a tambourine. Where's that tambourine? Here it is. You know, sometimes we need to be loud about Christ. Shout it. Let it burst forth. Now, it's interesting because in, um, in King David's life, he commissioned the Levites. The Levites were in charge of temple worship. And I want you to listen to, from 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 25 through 30, what the Levites did. 2 Chronicles 29, 25 through 30. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David. And the priest with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offerings be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song to the Lord began. Also, the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped. That's amazing. The whole assembly. There weren't people just sitting there with their hands in their pockets. Hmm, I wonder if I should sing. No, the whole assembly worshipped. The singers sang. And the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah, the king and the officials, commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. That's pretty amazing that the whole congregation was involved, engaged in worship. But I want you to notice the change. In verses 1 through 3, it was to praise God for what he's done. Marvelous things. But notice in verse 6, it's to praise God for who he is. Make a joyful noise before the king. The king. Knowing that King Jesus is sovereign over all things, he's the monarch of the universe, he's absolutely sovereign, should give you a great sense of joy. A great sense of contentment. A great sense of satisfaction. Because here's the, here's the issue. No matter what happens in your life, Jesus still rules. Doesn't matter who's elected for president. Jesus still rules. Doesn't matter who's in Congress. Jesus still rules. Doesn't matter what happens with Wall Street. Jesus still rules. It doesn't matter if cancer infects your body. Jesus still rules. It doesn't matter if you lose your job. Jesus still rules. It doesn't matter if you have a really bad relationship. Jesus still rules. Whatever you can think of that brings you discouragement, that brings you fear, that brings you despondency, it doesn't matter because Jesus still rules. He is the King of Kings. Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. 
The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's from the Hallelujah Chorus in Handel's Messiah, right there. He shall reign forever and ever. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. That's just another word for crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Have you prepared room in your heart for this king? Side note. We don't make Jesus king. He already is king. Jesus is not some pathetic savior over there waiting for the will of man to somehow exalt him as king. He already is king by virtue of who he is. He's already Lord of lords. We don't make him Lord. We don't make him king. What we do is we submit to him as king. We bow the knee to him as king. We surrender the white flag to him as king. We repent and kneel before this king and trust him. For salvation. He's the king. So not only are we to be joyful for what God has done, marvelous things, salvation. Not only are we to be joyful for who he is, he is the king of kings. But thirdly, we are to be joyful for what God will do in the future. Verses 7 through 9 tell us that. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. This is where we find that verse that says, let heaven and nature sing. It talks about it right there. What? Rivers clapping their hands. Now, this is a metaphor, right? Rivers clapping their hands. Hills singing for joy. The seas roaring. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Now remember, this was not originally written to be a Christmas hymn. This was originally written to be a second coming hymn. So when Joy the World talks about Jesus coming to rule and to reign, it's talking about the second coming of Christ to come and rule in judgment. Jesus came the first time to be Savior. What does Matthew one twenty one tell us? She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' first coming, salvation. On the cross, cried out, it is finished, the finished work of Christ. Second coming, not for salvation. Second coming, judgment. To bring judgment upon the earth. The righteous judge. It says there, he will come to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Now this may seem like a weird thing to be joyful about. I'm joyful that Jesus is coming to judge. You should be joyful. As a Christian, you should be joyful that the God of the universe is coming to make things right. If you're not a Christian, you should be fearful of the second coming of Christ because there will be a judgment. 
He's going to judge in equity. He's going to judge in justice. Notice what it says there. He will judge the world with righteousness. It doesn't say God will be fair. You don't want God to be fair. If God is fair, every single one of us would be sent to hell. We would get exactly what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve condemnation. We deserve eternal hell. And if you want God to be fair, then ask him to give you what you deserve. No, we want God to be just. And in God being just, he can choose to show mercy on many people to show them salvation. So we plead for God's mercy. But here's a moral dilemma. Maybe you've never thought about this. Here's an interesting thing. If you were to walk out of northeastern Colorado today and ask people a question, why are you alive today? Most people wouldn't say, you know what? I woke up this morning and I'm really just, I can't, I'm baffled. I don't understand why I'm not in hell today. Most people don't wake up and think, you know what? I should be in hell today because the God of the universe is a just God. And if I get what I deserve, I should be in hell. Nobody out there is thinking that, right? Most people are thinking, man, I'm waking up and I've got a crummy job. I've got a lousy wife. I've got bad kids. My life is terrible. God, what have you done to me? Most people don't wake up and say, man, I'm alive. I have breath and I'm not in hell. Here's the moral dilemma that we need to come to grips with. There's a, there's a passage in Proverbs that says this. Proverbs 17:15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now leave that up there just for a moment. This verse tells us that if a wicked sinner is justified, meaning if a wicked sinner is accounted righteous before God, if a wicked sinner stands not guilty before God, if a wicked sinner is accepted before God and a wicked sinner gets, gets off the hook, it says it's an abomination to God. God hates it when wicked people get, get off the hook. Why is that such a moral dilemma? Because God does it every day. Every time a sinner comes to faith in Christ, God justifies the wicked. God does something scandalous. God takes sinners who are separated from him, and through Christ, he can declare them not guilty. He can declare them accepted. He can declare them as innocent. Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. And to the one who does not work... But trust him who justifies the ungodly. There it is right there. God justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as unrighteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, here's something we need to understand. God must punish sin. He will punish it. There's one of two ways, and and I've said this many times, there's one of two ways God will punish sin. He's not going to brush it under the carpet. He's not going to wink at it. He's going to punish. He's going to mete out his wrath. He's going to pour out his anger in one of two ways. One, he's going to pour out his anger on his very son, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, cried out, it is finished. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ absorbs the full wrath of God. The punishment of God comes barreling down on Jesus. That's way number one. Way number two is eternity in heaven hell but either way god will mete out his justice better to be connected to jesus christ and the wrath that he bore as your substitute than to suffer eternity in a place called hell because god will punish the wicked he will come in justice he will judge the earth 
2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10 says this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's a scary passage of scripture. That's not the Jesus the world talks about. It's not the feathered back hair, hippie Jesus that walks around with pithy sayings and just loves everybody. This is the Jesus that comes back in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on those that have not bowed the knee to him as Savior and Lord. So knowing that all of your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, knowing that you stand innocent before a holy God, knowing that you've been acquitted before the God of the universe, knowing that because of Christ you are totally accepted by God, that in and of itself should be great cause for joy this Christmas because the righteous judge of the earth will come on that day and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy prepared to you uh, before the foundations of the earth. If you haven't trusted in Christ, it will be a day of reckoning. If there was no final judgment, if there was no final judgment, the holiness of God would be a mockery. We want judgment even as humans. We want all the wrongs that have been committed against us to be righted, don't we? And we don't go right those wrongs ourselves. We don't go take justice ourselves. We wait until the final day when God will come back and make all things new. He will make all things right. He will be the righteous judge. I don't understand all that. I don't understand how it unfolds. I don't understand how how it's all going to work out. But I do know that Christ is just, God is just, and he will make all things new, and he will right all the wrongs. Do you have a sense, a deep-seated sense of peace, contentment, satisfaction in Christ alone, regardless of the circumstances, as you rest in God's unchanging grace, as you think about the second coming of Christ to to, to rule and judge the earth? The final verse of Joy the World captures this. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of his love, and wonders of his love, and wonders of his love. In the midst of the righteousness of Christ, there's love. The wonders of his love. Have you this morning truly comprehended the height, the breadth, the depth, the width of God's amazing love? Has God's love the wonders of his love, so filled your heart, so filled your mind, so filled your life that you just have to explode. You can't can't not keep it in. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Whether that's singing in the shower to the Lord, I don't care. Whether that's driving down uh, Main Street and singing, whether that's corporately worshiping, whether that's telling your neighbor, somehow the joy of the Lord has got to be expressed. Now, I'm not talking about acting all crazy and weird and doing funky things that make people think that you're an idiot. I'm just saying appropriately, appropriately, does the joy of the Lord come out? 
Are you telling people? Are you sharing with people? Is Christmas a time for you to be articulating, sharing, declaring, singing the joy that's come from deep inside your heart? So I want us to do something today. We're going to practice what we preach, okay? It'd be really bad for me to say, okay, uh, we've talked about expressing it. Now go out and think happy thoughts at lunch about Jesus. I'm not going to do that. We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to sing here in just a few moments a couple of songs. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about that image of the Old Testament, the whole congregation sang. Now, I'm going to be sitting down there, so I'm not going to be up here watching. I know the praise team watches. Who's singing and who's not? Does not say, sing on key. It does not say, sing on pitch. It does not say, have a beautiful voice like you're on American Idol. It just says, make a joyful noise. So, if it comes out, it's joyful if it's from your heart. So I'm going to go into a time of prayer. Then after we pray, we're going to explode, erupt, sing praises to our great God as we think about joy to the world. So let's pray. Let me ask you to bow your heads and let's go into a time of prayer. Father, thank you for the joy of the Lord being our strength, as Nehemiah says. Thank you that, Jesus, you give us joy an indestructible joy that no one can take away. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for producing the joy deep, deep down in our heart. And, and Lord, sometimes we don't quite understand it, but we know what it is when we're not experiencing it, and we want to experience the joy of the Lord. And, and so, Father, as we come together as a corporate family to worship you, may this be a time where we articulate, we sing, we declare the joy of the Lord. First of all, Lord Jesus, because of what you've done, you've done marvelous things, Lord Jesus. You've died on the cross and saved us of our sins, and, and your right hand has worked salvation, and you've, you've come and shown us your grace. And, and number two, Jesus, because of who you are. You're the king of kings and lord of lords. You're the absolute monarch of the universe and you are in charge of all things. And and number three, Jesus, because of what you'll do, you're going to come back in righteousness and you're going to judge the earth. And and Lord Jesus, we just praise you and thank you. Let that be a spontaneous eruption of joy from our hearts because we've thought about, we've meditated upon, we've seen your word about what you've done, who you are, and what you will do. And Lord, if we need attitude adjustments this morning, if we have sin in our hearts, where we're not experiencing the joy of the Lord. Help us not to manufacture that in and of ourselves, but Holy Spirit, would you come and produce that? Because we can't. We can't pr- produce it in and of ourselves. We've got to, we need the grace of God to do that. So Holy Spirit, grant to us grace upon grace this morning to be joyful people. I know, Lord, I confess that Christmas is a time of stress. It's a time of anxiety. It, it, sometimes it's not joyful. Everybody else around us seems joyful, but maybe we're not joyful. I'm not joyful. Lord Jesus, would you help my attitude? Let us be joyful people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.